Last Lord's Day, we came to the end of Mark chapter 12, and it seemed to me a good opportunity to take a short break in our expositions. And part of the reason I'll be in New York next Lord's Day and then two Lord's Days in July, so it's going to be broken up a little bit. And then not to mention that some extra time to study chapter 13 would be helpful. So if you're familiar with that chapter, uh, it deals with some challenging things. So until then, my plan is to preach four messages that I preached about three years ago during uh, the initial COVID shutdowns to a largely empty room. So most of you, uh, if you were even coming to this church, uh, would have been sitting in your living rooms. It was a strange time. And it feels as though I've never really preached these messages. So I'm going to preach them now in the context of our gathered worship. Tonight's message is going to be a topical one focusing on the doctrine of our adoption. Adoption. This doctrine known and embraced will buttress our faith. It will strengthen us. It matters that we know God. And it matters that we know him as our father experientially, that we really know this, not just a theoretical knowledge. So the title of my message tonight is Knowing God as Father, Knowing Him as Our Father. When I first wrote this sermon, I was greatly helped by two men familiar to most of us. That would be J.I. Packer and John Murray, and I'm still greatly indebted to them and what I bring to you tonight. And if you want some edifying homework, go get... J.I. Packer's Knowing God and read the chapter, Sons of God, and then grab Murray's excellent book and read his little chapter there on adoption and redemption accomplished and applied. Now, as we begin, we could turn to many, many passages, but I want to just read two. And the first one is from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. This is, in some ways, an epitomizing text. We could have also turned to Romans 8 which says very much the same thing. But Galatians 4, and I'll read verses 4 to 7. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And then one other text, 1 John 3, verse 1 Just the beginning part of verse 1 in 1 John 3. John exclaims, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Of God. Well, let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of sonship. We thank you that we are called your children, and truly we are. 
We thank you for this love. We thank you for this great privilege. And as we consider these things tonight, we ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption who dwells in us, that we would come to understand this truth and live in light of this truth. Lord, that you would even bring more sons to yourself this evening, men and women brought into your family. We pray you would do so for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, we have the distinct privilege as New Covenant believers of knowing God as our Father, as well as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Under the Old Covenant, God's people were not clearly taught to think in these terms, at least not as explicitly as we are under the New Covenant. You will find Old Testament texts that speak of God as the Father of Israel. I'll give you a couple examples. Deuteronomy 32.6, is he not your father who bought you? Or Isaiah 63.16, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from everlasting is your name. But we have nothing in the Old Testament like the Sermon on the Mount with its emphasis, its new emphasis on living in light of the reality of having God as our Father. So in the New Testament, there's a new emphasis on the fatherhood of God, both the fatherhood of God in relation to the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find several statements to that effect, but also on the fatherhood of God in relation to men. We are sons of God. What we just read, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. So we see this new emphasis in the New Testament. And J.I. Packer explains this new emphasis in this way. He says that you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. How much do you make of that thought? I want us to think of that tonight. I want to challenge us and encourage us along these lines tonight. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, you know that he taught them to pray, our father in heaven. And many of us say those words or similar words several times a day. As we go to God in prayer, we instinctively use that language and we address him as our father. And that instinct, of course, is a very good one, a biblical one. But the danger in this with such familiar words is that they might become something like a thoughtless formula that we repeat. So we can easily slip into a mindless form of prayer. And we've got the things that we typically say, including how we begin and how we end. Just like if you write a letter, dear so-and-so, you might not think of how they're dear to you. Or sincerely, you really may not be that sincere. We can fall into that sort of thing with prayer, a pattern. But this preface, if we want to call it that, to the Lord's Prayer, was clearly intended by Jesus to instruct us and to encourage us, to make us think when we pray about who we are approaching. We are approaching God as our Father. 
This should shape the way that we come to him. It's a remarkable thing to call the God of the universe our Father. Calvin asked this question, who would break forth into such rashness as to claim for himself the honor of a son of God unless we had been adopted as children of grace in Christ? So had God not revealed this, would we ever think of it to call ourselves sons of God? So brothers and sisters, by the grace of adoption, we are members now of God's family. He's our father. Christ is our elder brother, and all of those who believe in Christ are our brothers and sisters. We have been adopted as children of grace in Christ. And it's this wonderful truth now that I want us to consider tonight. And the first thing I want us to ask is, what is adoption? What is adoption? Most of us are familiar with the concept on a human level. Now, adoption in New Testament times wasn't exactly the same as in our day. But the basic concept then and the basic concept now is the same. So you can imagine, speaking in today's terms, a couple who adopts a little child. And they take that child to be their very own. They welcome that child into their home. And the child receives the rights and privileges of this new relationship, just as if that child had been born to them. And amazingly, when it comes to our adoption by God, we can say the same things. God takes us as his very own children. He brings us into his household, and we come to enjoy the rights and the privileges of the sons of God. Now, the language of sonship is often used to describe this new relationship. Believers, whether male or female, are, in New Testament terms, sons of God. The New Testament word for adoption, which we find only five times, literally means to place into sonship. The significance of sonship becomes clear in a text like Galatians 4, 7, which we read. He says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So sonship implies inheritance. To become a son of God is to become an heir of God. Now let's consider a simple definition of the doctrine of of adoption. Our confession gives a very rich definition in chapter 12, and God willing, we'll come to that toward the end of the year as we're considering our confession of faith. It's the next chapter that we'll be considering after we finish justification. But I want to make use of a more concise definition from the Shorter Catechism, and it says that adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby all those who are justified are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So consider first that adoption is an act of God's free grace. It's a one-time act of God. It is the bestowal upon us of a new status. Think of John 1, 12. As many as received him, that is Christ, as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
to those who believe in his name. He bestowed upon them a new status, the status of sonship. And this is an entirely gracious act. It's an act of God's free grace. And this fact is actually highlighted by John in the very next verse there in John chapter 1. Who are those who believe and have this new status bestowed on them? He says, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who are born of God. We can no more earn our adoption than we can earn our regeneration. That we could somehow regenerate ourselves, cause ourselves to be born again, make ourselves alive, justify ourselves, whatever it might be. We can't earn any of this. It's all a gift of God's free grace. It's, it's not of merit. And if it were otherwise, God would have no children because none would deserve to be his children. By nature, we are all children of wrath, says the scriptures. We are sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2. That's true of all of us, just by birth. And on such, God graciously bestows this new status of sonship. They become beloved children who were once enemies of God. So that's the first thing. It is an act of God's free grace. But secondly, consider that adoption follows justification and it's based on our justification. Adoption is sometimes treated as merely a subset of justification, but it's distinct. It's a distinct act of God's grace and the application of our redemption. We use that language. Christ has accomplished our redemption. The Holy Spirit applies it. It's a distinct act. In the order of salvation, adoption follows after regeneration and calling, faith and repentance, and justification. And it follows after these things always. It must follow. All who are justified are also adopted. That's the truth of the scripture. But it's not just a matter of order that I want to bring out here, that this follows justification, but it's that our adoption is actually grounded in our justification. Let's think about this. When God freely justifies sinners, he declares them to be righteous. He says they're not guilty. And the basis of that is the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of his obedience. He pardons all of the sins of those who trust in Christ. And he accepts him as righteous in his sight. And he does this only for the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to the believer and received by faith alone. That's basically the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it's a wonderful thing to be justified. We have no hope without it. What is our greatest need? It is that we're not right with God. We've sinned. We're not right with him, we're wrong with God, and we need to be right with him. Justification answers that deepest need, that fundamental need. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. So apart from that, we have no peace, but we need to also understand that the gospel, the good news, is not just that we as sinners can be made right with God. There is an even higher blessing of the gospel, and that is adoption. This is the third thing that I want us to consider here in our definition. 
There's an even higher blessing. It is adoption. Those whom God freely justifies, he also freely receives into his family. So we who were once dead in trespasses and sins are received into the number and enjoy all of the blessings and the privileges of being sons of God. So we're not just forgiven and accepted as righteous, but we're embraced as children. So that's why I say, and, and that's why Murray argues and Packer and many other people would argue that the blessing, the grace of adoption is a higher blessing than justification. It's grounded on justification. You can't have it unless you've been justified, but it is a higher blessing. Surely, says Murray, this is the apex of grace and privilege, to be a son of God. As Packer puts it, this is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. So have you grasped something of the wonder of adoption, of divine sonship? Because we hear it often. You might be hearing it now. You know these things. I know most of you know these things, but have we really grasped these things? If we understand even a little something of how great a privilege it is that we are called sons of God and that we can call God our Father, then I think upon reflection we will all agree that this is the highest privilege of the gospel, that we would be adopted. By adoption, we become sons of God the Father himself. It's the Father who is our Father in heaven, the first person of the Trinity, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Recall the voice of the Father at our Lord's baptism. As he went into the Jordan, he was well-pleasing to his Father, and there was that voice, you are my beloved Son. And if we are united to Christ, if we are accepted in the beloved, God says the same thing of us, the same thing of you. You are my beloved Son. My beloved daughter, you are accepted in the beloved, Jesus Christ. So we're no longer a slave, but we're a son. And if we're a son, then we're an heir of God through Christ. So it's no wonder that John cries out in amazement, Behold, what manner of love is this? That God would call us his children. This love that's been bestowed upon us. We are the children of God. The concept is relatively simple to grasp, but the wonder of it and the marvel of it, I think we will never fully appreciate, even in all eternity, as we're considering what it is that we are the sons of God. We will never fully appreciate the wonder and the marvel of this. And I'm trying to encourage us to more and more and more to appreciate that. And even if just a little bit more, we are helped today by God to see something of the marvel of our position, of of this bestowal of grace upon us as the sons of God, then I will feel that I have done what God has called me to do here tonight. It's an act of God's free grace whereby all those who are justified are received into the number and receive all the privileges of the sons of God. Now, have you received this grace, this grace of adoption? If you haven't, the good news tonight is that you can, even tonight. 
And the way into the family of God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said this, that nobody comes to the Father except through him. So if you would be embraced by God as a beloved child and have this wonderful privilege bestowed upon you to be a son of the living God, to be an heir of God, even a joint heir with Christ, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be a child of God. So that's something very briefly about what adoption is. But what I want to ask now, secondly, is what difference does this make to know? What difference does it make to know God as Father? I hope it's clear that it makes all the difference to have God as your Father. Because if you don't have God as your Father, then you're not reconciled to God, you're not right with God. But what difference does it make to know God as Father? And again, I would say it makes all the difference in the world that we know this, that we dwell upon this, that we think about this, that we make this an anchor for our souls as we live the Christian life. We're meant to do this, to dwell upon this. There's no doubt that God wants his children to know him as Father. Just look at the New Testament revelation. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's clear that God wants us to know him as father, to call him father, to pray to him as father, and so on. And also, God has given us the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption. So we read a text, as we did earlier, that it's by that spirit in us that we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6. We're even told that this spirit that dwells in us, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of adoption, bears witness with our own spirit that we are indeed the children of God. So clearly God intends for us to know him as father. The doctrine of adoption, if it's understood and embraced, is life-shaping. It's life-shaping. Our sonship to God is not an abstract and purely theoretical concept. This isn't just something interesting to study. I think it's profoundly interesting to study, but it's not just that. This is something to base your life on. It's of immense practical value to ground your life in this doctrine. Our adoption, says Packer, is the basis for our life as Christians. So you ask, how is this? How so? What are some of the benefits of knowing God as our Father? I want to mention five ways, fairly briefly, about how this doctrine is life-shaping. And I trust you can come up with some other ways, but here are five things that knowing God as Father promotes in our lives. And the first thing is that knowing God as Father promotes a life of praise and thanksgiving. It promotes a life of praise and of thanksgiving. Here in this one doctrine is fuel for endless praise and inexhaustible gratitude. Think of it. The very thought should cause you to marvel as you really consider that you are a child of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Consider the privileges of your new status in light of what you deserve. 
Consider the price of your adoption, the blood of Jesus. We sang how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Consider that. The privileges, the price, but also consider the permanence of your adoption. Who or what could possibly change your status as a true child of God? God will not unadopt any of his beloved blood-bought children. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. So take time this week, tonight even, to really consider these things. You might ask, is this practical? I want something to do. Here's something to do. So much of our Christian life is to use our minds and to think. Get some space and really think about this. You're not going to be able to rush this. But consider it. Meditate upon these things until your hearts are stirred up to praise and thanksgiving. So secondly, knowing God as Father promotes a life of peace. Promotes a life of peace. The doctrine of our adoption should remind us and assure us of God's love. To know that God calls us his children should strengthen our faith. It should help us to persevere. If we are God's children, then surely we have peace with God. He's reconciled us to himself. We're no longer his enemies. We've been received into his family. But even though we have what we might call this fundamental peace, peace with God, we're right with God, we don't always in this life enjoy a sense of peace as we ought to. We don't always have a freedom from anxiety. In fact, we're often very anxious and very concerned, even as believers. Our hearts can be very troubled and our souls overwhelmed. Every day, we are tempted by the unknown to be fearful and anxious. And the temptation is to dwell and to meditate upon the unknown. We're really good at doing that. And it's harder for us to dwell and meditate on what we do know to be true. And here is something we know to be true, our adoption. We do not know what a day will bring forth. That is true. All we know, as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, that each day will have its own trouble. You can expect trouble every day. And the very thought of this uncertainty very easily unsettles us. But as children of God, this is when we need to think about our adoption. We need to preach to ourselves. We have a great father who loves us, who cares for us, who is enthroned in heaven, ruling over all things. He knows exactly what a day will bring forth. He's not going to be surprised. We'll be surprised. We fall into various trials. They catch us off guard. God is not caught off guard. He knows what a day will bring forth, and he knows exactly what we will need even before we ask it. Jesus preached about these things in the Sermon on the Mount, and in that sermon, Jesus says, do not worry three times. He knows that we need to hear this. Do not worry. He even asked that searching question, why do you worry? Think about it. Child of God, why do you worry, says Jesus. And then he reasons with us in light of our adoption. 
You remember what he does. He says, look at the birds. Look at the field. Consider how your father takes care of all of these things. He clothes the field. He feeds the birds. And then he would have us think, will not your father take much more care of you? Will he not consider you in all of the things that you are anxious about? Remember, you have a father in heaven who cares for you. So what Jesus is doing, he's teaching us how to have peace in the midst of life's inevitable troubles. He's showing us just how practical the doctrine of our adoption is. How knowing God as Father promotes a life of peace. A third thing, knowing God as Father promotes a life of prayer. Praise and thanksgiving, peace, but also prayer. Promotes a life of prayer. Now the life of peace and the life of prayer go together. And we see this probably most clearly in a text like Philippians 4, 6, and 7, where Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, he essentially says, be prayerful. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Jesus makes the same connection between prayer and peace in the Sermon on the Mount. Before and after preaching about worry, his little section there about worry, before and after that, he preaches about prayer. And there's a key word, a unifying theme, and that is the Father, our Father. Knowing God as Father not only promotes peace, but it encourages prayer. So we're taught to pray, our Father in heaven. This means when we pray, we don't need to twist God's arm so that he'll listen to us. He's our father. He loves us. He's ready to hear us. He's ready to help. And he's able to help us. Those of us who are fathers here, as imperfect fathers, we're ready to hear our children. We're ready to help them. We want to listen to them, to their desires, to their concerns. Whatever it might be, we want to give them good Things and how much more so with our perfect Father in heaven. To address God as Father is an awesome privilege. One of the great privileges of our adoption. In prayer, we come boldly and freely to God as children. And surely the more we dwell upon this, the more we will come to God when we understand our relationship to him by grace, the grace of adoption. If you want to stimulate your prayer life, meditate on your adoption. If you feel dull maybe and you pray our Father in heaven, maybe just spend some time. Take that reminder to consider the doctrine of adoption and see if you are not stirred up to pray. Knowing God as Father promotes a life of prayer, of coming boldly as a child of the King of Kings to the throne of grace, our Father's throne of grace. A fourth thing that knowing God as Father promotes is a life of pursuing holiness. It promotes a life of pursuing holiness. The pursuit of holiness can be motivated by many things. Some good things, some bad things. For example, it can be motivated wrongly by a slavish fear. But it can be motivated rightly by a godly fear. One of the sweetest motivations for pursuing holiness 
is our sonship to God. That we're his children. He is our father. He's freely adopted us into his family. He loves us. He cares for us. He hears our prayers. Will these truths not motivate us to live the Christian life? Think again of the Sermon on the Mount. Packer says the sermon could be described as the royal family code. And he speaks of three all-embracing principles of conduct that are grounded in the thought of our sonship to God. And those concepts are imitating, glorifying, and pleasing the Father. You can check it out in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll find all of these. Imitating, glorifying, and pleasing the Father. These ought to be among our great motivations in the pursuit of holiness. That we want to imitate our Father, to be like our Father, to be holy as he is holy. I think most children, maybe even little boys, understand this. They, they want to imitate their father. They want to be like them. I can remember this when I was little, even down to just little things. My dad had fixed his baseball glove one time with a shoestring and he tied it around. Well, I wanted a shoestring, so I begged my mom to cut a shoestring off and we were late to the baseball game because I wanted a shoestring tied around my glove like my dad had. We want to be like our fathers, especially when we have good fathers and here we have a perfect father And ought we not to be motivated by this desire to be holy as he is holy, to be like him? We want to glorify our father. That's that's a motivation that's grounded in this knowledge of God as our father. We want to live in a way that brings honor to him. The first petition in the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father, hallowed be your name. We want to live like that. We want... God's name to be honored on account of the way that we live. And we want to please our Father by obeying his commandments. That's not a slavish thing. That's because we're we're his sons. We want to please him. He's our Father. So you see, it's a motivation for our pursuit of holiness. But a fifth and final thing I want us to consider is that knowing God as Father promotes a life of patient endurance. It promotes a life of patient endurance, and not least because it reminds us of the greatness of the love of God. Recall from Jude 21, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Pastor Jim said that's the heart of perseverance there. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And one way that we do this is to dwell often on our adoption. It reminds us of the greatness of the love of God. Knowing God as Father also allows us to see God's fatherly care, both in good times, times of prosperity, but especially also in times of adversity. Because the one in control, as we're thinking in terms of our sonship, we are reminded that the one in control of all things is our Father who loves us and wants to make us like our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And we're reminded, as it's been said, that all things come not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. So when you do fall into trials, if you're thinking as a child of God, you ought to think, this is not random, this is not bad luck, but this is coming to me from my father even. 
by his fatherly hand. He has some good in mind for me with this. Our father always has good in mind, even when he gives us a bitter cup. John Flavel says, suppose the cup be bitter, yet it is the cup which your father has given you. And can you suspect poison to be in it? Sometimes God as a loving father may give us a bitter cup to chasten us. He will chasten us. And at such times, we ought not to be discouraged, but to persevere. This is the message that's brought out in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 7. That chastening is not a sign of God's hatred, but of his love. It's a sign of your sonship. He's treating you as a son. But finally, as we are thinking about how it motivates us to persevere, when we think about our adoption, we ought to think about our inheritance. Sonship, inheritance, they go together. Remember that. We're no longer slaves, but we're sons and we're heirs of God. We're even joint heirs with Christ so that all that belongs to Christ belongs to us. There's no greater inheritance than our inheritance as the children of God. Many people have wonderful inheritances in this life. And you might look at that and and you might wish, oh, that I were the child of some whoever it might be to receive an inheritance like that. But if we're really thinking clearly, we will understand and we will marvel at the fact that we have the greatest possible inheritance. So dwell often upon that and that will surely help you to patiently endure to the end to know the hope that is yours as a child of God. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Think about your inheritance as a child of God. It's incorruptible and undefiled. It does not fade away. It's reserved for you. So adoption, it's an act of God's free grace whereby all those who are justified are received into the number and have all the privileges of the sons of God. It's the highest privilege of the gospel. And knowing this and thinking about this, even daily, promotes so many good things in our life. Life of praise and thanksgiving, peace, prayer, of pursuing holiness, of patient endurance to the end. Could anything be greater than having God as your father? If you've not received the grace of adoption, will you today, again I ask that, will you today receive the free gift? And if you have received this grace of adoption, as many of us have, praise God, will you commit to dwell more often on this wonderful reality? Will you commit to think of this, perhaps even to stop at times and remind yourself who you are, your identity? I'm a child of God. I belong to my Father in heaven. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we of all people, we should be called of all things children of God. And so we are. Amen.
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you for the great privilege that is ours to come to you this night, to your throne of grace, calling you our Father, because truly we are your children by grace, the grace of adoption, that you have bestowed this upon us. Lord, fill us with gratitude. Fill us with wonder. Give us a greater understanding and a greater knowledge of this in our day-to-day life. We pray, help us to work this deep into our souls that we might live our lives grounded in this truth that we are your beloved children. Help us tonight. We pray, write these truths upon our heart. And again, we would plead, as you have done for so many of us, in taking us from our darkness and our sin, our love of the world, and bringing us into your family. We pray that you would do that for some here tonight, that they would look upon Christ and receive him by faith, be joined to him forever, and have eternal life in him. Pray in his name. Amen. Amen.